0: It is absolutely explosive. It is rage, and it is across the board in the Democratic Party. And I've seen very few things that make the Democrats come together quite like this.
1: Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, July 12th. Today, Abby Livingston is here to talk about a topic that's driving Democrats in Washington crazy. The effort by the centrist group No Labels to get a moderate third-party candidate on the presidential ballot in 2024. With Joe Biden's slumping approval ratings, Dems are worried that a third-party spoiler would help lift Donald Trump back into the White House, kind of like what happened in 2016. And later, Eric Gardner and Ben Landy dive into why Elon Musk is the least of Mark Zuckerberg's latest legal headaches. We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Happy Hump Day, everybody. I'm joined today on The Powers That Be by Abby Livingston to talk about How it's Xanax season for Democrats. Democrats are worried about a third party. I wrote about this for The Best and the Brightest on Monday. Go check it out on Puck. Abby, the main concern about a third party bid seems to be no labels. The dark money centrist group that wants to get on the ballot and run a moderate like Larry Hogan. Uh, But more likely, Joe Manchin, who won't say no to it. Look, there are other third parties out there. Cornell West is probably going to be the Green Party nominee. There's going to be a libertarian out there. But No Labels is really getting under the skin of Democrats. They're worried that this will only hurt Joe Biden, which is probably true. Politico reported this week that MoveOn, a liberal group, <laughs> and Third Way, a centrist group, are literally coming together. These are not ideological allies necessarily, to go up to Capitol Hill to brief Democratic chiefs of staff on the threat of no labels. And they said (laughs) that Joe Manchin, or his staff at least, will be in this meeting, according to the Politico article. Is this going to push Manchin away from running? Because it sure seems like he's still thinking about it. Is that right?
0: I mean, it seems to be very up in the air. But my sense from talking to extremely cautious Democrats is at least at Capitol Hill, is they're not inclined to pressure Joe Manchin. That is not an effective tactic. I, I do think there is concern about Cornell West and some of these others. Anyone who is a Democrat and lived through Ralph Nader and Jill Stein is concerned mm-hmm. about any of these things. Mm-hmm. But no labels is a specific point of rage. And I think some of this is Related to who runs it. One of the chief strategists is Mark Penn, who was a Hillary Clinton advisor during the 2008 campaign. I listened to James Carville's podcast and he rants about it fairly frequently with Mark Penn. And then you have, you know, (laughs) Obama Democrats who aren't fans of him either. And so I think part of it is the personalities involved, but it's also the money. It's suspicion that Republicans are pushing this as a means to be a spoiler. Mm -hmm. This is very personal and this is very concerning.
1: The other thing at play here is Democrats want to keep the Senate next year. And look, West Virginia is a reach state as popular as Joe Manchin has been in that state in the past by, you know, picking off independent voters and and people who might not typically be Democrats. Jim Justice, I think the governor is running for Senate. He's really popular. It's just such such a Trumpy state. What are the chances they can convince him to run for Senate?
0: You know, I I am not particularly plugged into Joe Manchin world, but he is a politician who loves the game. But this is a state, I I covered it circa 2014, and you could feel it at light speed. West Virginia was one of the last states I I don't you can't technically call it the South, but that was moving toward from Democrat New Deal to the Republican Mm -hmm. Party. It was delayed, but it moved at light speed once it started between basically during the Obama years. So it just is a sense of momentum for me personally that is going to make this very hard. But Joe Manchin's really good at what he does. He's a good fundraiser. But this is the only chance Democrats can hold this seat. I don't like making predictions, but I think it's a pretty safe one that if he steps back, this is off the table. Republicans are extremely confident they can win this race no matter what. Democrats have plenty of reasons to counter that. They point to a very competitive Republican field that could get very messy, but it's very much up in the air and control of the Senate is up in the air here too.
1: Yeah. And the last time Democrats won West Virginia was 96 with Bill Clinton, I think. But I remember like when I was in a, a campaign embed covering 2008, there's still a little bit of a notion that Obama might be able to win it back. You know, that was a year he won Indiana and North Carolina for the first time. John McCain and Sarah Palin went to West Virginia and like Southeast Ohio because that, you know, which signals they at least thought it was like mildly competitive. But on a presidential level, it's it's gone at this point. Before we started recording, you said something interesting, which is Joe Manchin doesn't really respond Well. To pressure. You have to kind of work him from other angles. And I was remembering during the, the Build Back Better negotiations, every single time someone in the Democratic Party poked at him or like shamed him, or like when the Sunrise Movement followed him around with like their protest signs and were shouting, shame, 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 that only pushes him in the other direction. And so it feels like if a bunch of Democrats start poking him and, and shaming him, that he might just run to do it. He eventually came around on Build Back Better because, and you might know the answer to this better than me, but like Biden was never the guy to criticize Joe Manchin in public. And he worked private angles. And they do have something of a relationship and they do have similar political tendencies. They love the retail politics. They have an antenna toward the middle. And so that to me seems like the best path to get Manchin not to run is maybe just hearing directly from Biden. I don't know if that'll happen, but private conversations rather than public shaming.
0: Well, and I think that's a larger conversation in politics. I mean, I think following a politician into the bathroom to lobby them is it's just defies common sense. There's a catharsis there of being able to do that. But I I don't think it's effective. And, you know, I just sort of skim the landscape and it doesn't look like there's a primary challenge that's very serious brewing, which I thought was interesting, given all of the outrage at him in the last couple of years. So I I think Democrats are very much living in reality in this situation and trying to Mm -hmm. be strategic.
1: Mm hmm. So I've talked to Teddy about this a little bit, but I want to get your perspective on this as well, because, you know, so many people in D.C. What is no labels? Like, who are they? Does anyone root for them? <laughs> what are they doing here? Can you just give me like a 30,000 foot view of this group? Because I guarantee you no one in Los Angeles where I am right now knows anything about no labels. It seems like a preoccupation of like rich centrist donors and people in Washington, despite the fact that it could have an enormous impact on the next presidential election, it's still like a very little known group.
0: It's run by, like I said, Mark Penn and his wife. You know, I I honestly have not paid that much attention to it until the last few months. I, Mm -hmm. I was vaguely aware of it in the back of my mind. And so it's promoting centrism. I believe Joe Lieberman has been associated with them, but they haven't, been consequential players in the things I've been covering over the years. And so I've actually had to go back and kind of do my research on it. But it is absolutely explosive. It is rage and it is across the board in the Democratic Party. And I've seen very few things that make the Democrats come together quite like this.
1: No, that's absolutely the case. And, and I was listening to Pod Save America the other day and they because they were interviewing Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and she endorsed Biden. They asked her about Cornell West. And Cornel West is the author, professor, social justice activist from her Bernie circle of people. uh, She refused to criticize Cornel West. She said nice things about him, but she endorsed Biden and then started raging against no labels. And look, ideologically, no labels is like as far as you could get from (laughs) Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. But she made the astute point that like, do these people understand how the Electoral College works? This is a winner take all system and you can't just like get on the ballot in a bunch of states, win 34 percent of the vote and become president (laughs) like you have to win majorities in all the big electoral states.
0: I mean, the allegations are this is a group that's looking to just raise money. But I think a bigger picture thing going on right now that I find fascinating is since Republicans took control of the House, there's no hope for Democrats to move big legislation. I mean, it's all going to die. What you see is a very lockstep Democratic Party in the House. I, I'm, I'm astonished when I hear moderates and liberals say they're getting along. Part of that is being mm-hmm. at least on the House side in the minority. It is so much easier to be in the minority. Mm-hmm. But I think you are seeing a Democratic Party Some of these younger members who were elected in 2018 and 2020, they're becoming seasoned and pragmatic, and they're looking at this going, if we get this wrong, Donald Trump is president again. And Mm -hmm. so, I mean, I've been sort of surprised at how disciplined this party is, but they seem very Mm -hmm. united with the circumstances as they are.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm reminded of 2019 when Howard Schultz was basically planning to run as an independent. And look, I make this point in the piece I filed on Monday the thing that changed for Democrats and independents and young people and voters of color and, you know, casual voters between 2016 and 2020 was that Trump won and the stakes of politics changed. It wasn't cool to sit out an election. Back in 2000, Ralph Nader was like appearing in Rage Against the Machine videos and like laconic millennials like myself were like, and I'm just going to sit this one out <laughs> like that's not cool anymore. Like that is deeply uncool, in fact. And so Democrats harangued <laughs> Schultz to like not run because it would hurt Biden. And it seems like Democrats are getting ahead of this problem with enough time. And if you have people like AOC out there already raising the alarm that a third party could get Trump back in office I think they are taking the right steps to block that from happening. Look, it can still happen. Biden is not popular, but this is a long way of saying for incumbent presidents, you got to make your reelection a choice and not a referendum. And they are seem like they're doing just that.
0: Absolutely. I agree completely.
1: Abby, thank you so much for joining us. Hopefully one of these days you and I can sit down with Joe Manchin. I don't know. I don't know. I don't even know if he likes reporters or not, but (laughs) thanks for joining us.
0: Thanks for having me, Peter.
1: When we come back, Eric Gardner is here to talk about Zuck.
2: Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy here with Eric Gardner. Happy Wednesday. Happy Wednesday to you, too. Eric, we've been talking on the pod for for a while now about Elon Musk's lawyer, Alex Spiro, writing this threatening letter to Mark Zuckerberg, basically accusing him of stealing Twitter trade secrets to launch threads, his Twitter clone copycat app. And we've talked a little bit about why that's probably a hard case to make, whether or not Elon actually does sue him or is just sort of posturing. But I wanted to talk to you about some of the other legal issues that Zuckerberg is dealing with right now. Obviously, if we were going to list all the suits that Facebook and Meta have been involved with over the years, and even just now, we'd probably need a week just to mention them all. But there are a couple right now that are particularly interesting um, and that I think not enough people are talking about. So tell me what is going on with this OnlyFans porn lawsuit?
3: Yeah, I think when people think about Meta's problems these days, they think about the antitrust stuff, they think about the privacy stuff. But here, the OnlyFans thing is is something that kind of came out of the blue last year. Obviously, the company has been going through a lot of problems over moderation, Here was one where a bunch of adult entertainers claimed that Meta was colluding with OnlyFans to kind of blacklist rival porn sites that they were, you know, blocked and sent down visibility and all that. And what's more, they claimed that OnlyFans was bribing these top Meta executives, including Nick Clegg, who's a very prominent official at Meta, used to be the deputy prime minister of the United Kingdom. So, uh, you know they said that these executives were being bribed they came forth with financial documents they they said that there was a whistleblower report and no one knew what to make of this because it sounded so crazy and yet there was apparently some evidence of that the judge you know took a look at this and and heard arguments and and said you know what this was all plausible and we're going to move this forward to discovery so you know the meta had tried you know section 230 arguments and And the judge said, no, look, you know, this could be potentially anti-competitive and we got to take a look at this and and we got to figure out whether this is really true or not. So for the last few months, there's been a deep dive investigation going on here where they've been, you know, subpoenaing banks, um, subpoenaing journalists and having depositions with with them and trying to figure out what's what. And at the end of it, it appears like, you know, this whole thing might have just been some sort of weird hoax or something because no one has been able to come across, you know, firm evidence that, that this bribery thing was real.
2: Yeah, I, I assume that OnlyFans and Facebook deny all these claims, but what is it that the adult entertainers actually want here? What's their end game? Is there a
3: damages claim? Oh, certainly. You know, they want substantial damages for how their sites have have suffered in traffic ratings. Basically they think that this is a market harm. They, you know, would want, you know, injunctive relief and ways to kinda of like set them on par and to make sure that this doesn't happen. For their part, the plaintiffs, although, you know, it hasn't been decided whether or not the the bribery thing is All intense and dead, but the plaintiffs say regardless of that, there's still something fishy going on. There's still the fact that OnlyFans has been boosted in visibility, has been skyrocketing in traffic ratings, while their websites are are languishing and they blame uh, meta for this and they want answers. And if it's not, you know, bribery, not you know executives finagling the, the rankings due to some sort of under the table payments, maybe it is something else. So they wanna wanna know about that. I I'm less confident uh, that, that they're gonna actually be given all this rope to find out what's going on. But we'll see. I mean like it's it's a serious you know problem for Meta. Uh, it certainly was something that that they took to be very sensitive. I mean I'm sure they do not want it getting out there that they were bribed and that's why the feeds we see uh, are the way they are. To them and they took this pretty seriously and they looked to see whether or not you know there really was a whistleblower reports and they you know interviewed these executives and asked them you know, you know like what do you say about these these allegations and uh you know they had you know some really top lawyers looking into this and so far it just seems just kind of a weird thing
2: yeah it'll be interesting to see whether meta is able to sort of shut down this case now that
3: potentially it looks like
2: these bribery claims might not pan out in the discovery process Meanwhile, Eric, you'd also reported Meta is also dealing with another company, not just Elon Musk, accusing them of stealing trade secrets. There's this AI startup in Massachusetts that says one of their former employees went over to Facebook and allegedly shared whatever their secret AI sauce is with them. That company, Neural Magic, also represented by Quinn Emanuel, the same law firm that's working with Elon, coincidentally, does that give them any kind of advantage in their case?
3: Well, you know, I think... What makes this case particularly interesting is a couple of things one the fact that it's so close to trial i mean this is this is going to trial in just two months and nobody's talking about it there's you know up to a billion dollars worth of damages on, on the hands and it involves artificial intelligence which is so supremely important to these tech companies futures right supposedly like you know some some of these ai secrets in terms of you know speeding up neural networks have already been incorporated into metas products uh, you know, it's no small thing for this plaintiff to be out there seeking, you know, kind of royalties for for what's happening and and all that. Um, it, there's a lot that's not known about this case, even even the rulings were heavily redacted. When we're dealing with these trade secrets cases, they're very tricky to adjudicate because the parties are always trying to protect their secrets, uh, even in the course of a a public proceeding. And there's been lots of discussions about how this trial will play out. As for, you know, the the involvement of Quinn Emanuel, I mean, it's notable. I mean, a huge law firm, they're involved in taking on Meta in so many different ways. And uh, the fact that Neuromagic has this law firm at its steed, I mean, really just goes to show about how important this case is and how consequential it is and gives it like real thrust. There's still a couple months, so, you know, perhaps they come to a settlement. But if not, I, I think it's going to be a, quite a spectacle. And it's going to be kind of like foreshadowing of this new era of like trade secrets cases. I think we're going to see more and more.
2: But Eric, before I let you go, there, there was a big ruling that just came down in this Microsoft Activision antitrust case that was brought by the FTC. What's going on over there?
3: Yeah, it's definitely a big thing. I mean, the FTC was trying to stop this merger, which is probably the largest merger in the history of the, the tech industry and the FTC said it was anti-competitive and that if this merger went through that all of Microsoft's Xbox rivals weren't going to be able to get access to Call of Duty and, and other games and the judge shot those arguments down and said that the merger can close next week and this is really a big thing and a you know, huge black eye for the FTC and Lena Khan. I'm sure I'll go to appeal now but you know, for the time being, for the ne- you know for the next few days, it looks like this merger is going to be able to go forward, and it, you know, really like handcuffs the the agency in terms of its merger theories. Uh, so, you know, this is something that I've been you know closely following for these last few months, and for a while, it really seemed like the FTC had the upper hand here, and that the Microsoft Activision merger was in deep trouble. So, to see the events of the last few weeks, where you know the FTC finally went to court Court to try to stop the merger, there was a quick, rushed, expedited uh, trial where there were testimony from all these executives, and then the, at the last second, right before the the deadlines, uh, the judge comes out with this ruling that basically gives Microsoft the victory. Uh, is, is quite stunning, and uh, yeah, there's there's a lot more to come, I'm sure. But you know, for for now, Lena Khan's probably not very happy.
2: Yeah, definitely a black eye for the Biden administration, for Lena Khan. This was a $70 billion deal, I mean, a, a really major merger in this industry. Obviously, that this news just broke uh, a few hours before you and I hopped on the podcast here. So we'll see what happens. Eric, keep us posted. And thanks, as always, for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, Executive Editor at Puck.